0: To Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 52, Jeremiah 52, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king,
1: and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Himutil, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon in the ninth year of his reign. In the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works around it, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. They went, and they went in the direction of the Arabah, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of, the, of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the artisans, but Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of Yahweh, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. Also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard carried, took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bulls that were under the sea, the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of Yahweh. The bronze of all these things was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, its circumference was 12 cubits, and its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. On it was a capital of bronze. The height of the one capital was five cubits, a network, and pomegranates. All of the bronze were around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were ninety-six pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were a hundred upon the network all around. And the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, with seven men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city, And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, 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 the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings that were with him in Babylon, so Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, until the day of his death, as long as he lived.
0: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your
1: Holy Word given us through Your prophet Jeremiah that we have
0: examined these months. We pray we humbly receive its truths. That we would tremble before your word.
1: We would be on your right of your righteous judgment. We would
0: be convicted and repentant where we should. And that we would know you look over your word to do it. It is certain. And just as certain as your word of judgment, as we've seen it fulfilled, is your word of promise. Speak to us now, graciously give your spirit, open our eyes, teach us Christ,
1: conform us to his image, glorify your name in your church, Father, by your word. In the name of Christ we ask this, amen. Chapter 52 of Jeremiah is an editorial epilogue, a compiler's coda a postscript, a historical appendix. The final words of chapter 51 should leave you in no doubt as to the authorship of everything that's preceded. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Okay. But then what are we to make of chapter 52? Where does this stuff come from? Well, most of the material, almost verbatim, is found in Second Kings twenty four eighteen through twenty five twenty one and verses twenty seven through thirty. There are a few minor differences, most notably that the uh, any mention of Gedaliah is missing from chapter fifty two of Jeremiah, and whereas we have these numbers given in verses twenty eight through thirty of our text, those are not found in Second Kings. Now, when Scripture borrows from Scripture, we may be confused, but we shouldn't be desperately confounded. We shouldn't be shaken. If you want to know who wrote this postscript? Well, perhaps it was Barak, but I think the best answer as to who wrote Jeremiah 52 is the same answer that we would give as to who wrote 2 Kings 25. Not that they're necessarily the same person, but the answer is the same. Who wrote them? We don't know. And far more important than finding out who wrote them is asking ourselves, what are they there for? What are they meant to communicate? What is the author's intent? C.S. Lewis lamented that the literary criticism of his day took a turn from focusing on the literature itself to focusing on the author. And so in order to read the book, what you really had to end up doing was read the author. So the critics of his day would tell you, in order to find out the meaning of the, the book, you, you had to do some kind of detective work, and you find out the sources and the inspiration behind the work. Or you begin to act as a psychologist and discover the, the meanings, the motives, uh, the, 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 uh, the psychology that was behind the author's work, which the author himself was probably largely ignorant of. And Lewis demonstrated how, in his case, these critics are almost always wrong. What they wrote about him and what inspired him, moved him, was behind his works, was just a complete fabrication. So instead of our asking ourselves to no avail, uselessly, who wrote this epilogue? We should instead ask, what was the author's intent? Why is it here? What did God want to communicate to us? And I think the answer is plain and it harmonizes beautifully with the major thrust of Jeremiah as we've seen it throughout these months of study. What is the point of this historical appendix? I think it's simply this. God is good on His Word. Or to state it as we see it in Jeremiah chapter 1, God is look, God not is looking over his word to perform it, God looked over his word and he performed it. That's what this historical appendix tells us. And yet it still does tell us, we'll see, that God is looking over his word to perform it still. Our text opens with the enthroning of King Zedekiah at age 21, the last reigning king of Judah, verses 1 and 2. And from our encounters with Zedekiah in chapters 34, chapter 37, chapter 38, you might recall that he was a double-minded man, as James said, unstable in all his ways. And so while he didn't burn the Word of God, as Jehoiakim did, instead he inquired of it, yet, he inquired of it only to ignore it. Or, didn't seek to have Jeremiah executed as Jehoiakim did, though while he freed him from the cistern, he kept him confined to the court of the guard. He didn't want him loose either. Calling Zedekiah a double-minded man is a bit too much of a compliment, I think, while we see this half hearted seeking of God, what it really expresses is a whole hearted selfishness. Zedekiah is trying to play it both ways only because he's singularly focused on himself. And so we shouldn't think the scriptures uncharitable whenever they tell us that he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And that's a startling way of putting it, for two reasons. One, is instead of being compared to his immediate predecessor, Jehoiakim, he was compared to his brother that reigned before that, not his nephew that immediately reigned before, but his brother who reigned before, Jehoiakim. And then he's compared to Jehoiakim, whose wickedness was so blatant, overt, outright, is striking. Zedekiah's ignoring the word is on par
0: for the same level of wickedness as Jehoiakim's burning the word of God.
1: So heed James's warning. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't flatter yourself. That you're a hearer. Zedekiah was a hearer. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourself. For anyone is a, if, in, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For, what he, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now why? Was Zedekiah's rule evil? The plain, immediate answer from our text is his rule was evil because he did what was evil. He did it. It's that simple. Yet, it's more complex. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done, verse 3 for Because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that He cast them out from His presence. And that's a complex sentence. And it has a complex answer. But you should know that the Hebrew doesn't smooth anything out and make it more easily grasped at all here. And if you go to 2 Kings 24, it reads exactly the same in this instance. This isn't a grammatical oops that happened. Zedekiah's evil reign is explained by what Yahweh will do at the end of his reign as the reason for it. We're not told that Yahweh was angry because Zedekiah was evil. That's true. We're not told Yahweh was angry because Zedekiah was evil. We're told Zedekiah was evil because Yahweh was angry. God does not simply judge wicked kings. Sometimes wicked kings are the judgment. He doesn't simply judge wicked kings. He judges by wicked kings. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. And right now, he's turning Zedekiah's heart. He has the king in place to will judgment on his people. You remember whenever Yahweh told Moses in advance what was going to happen, he said that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart towards those ends. Exodus 7.3. Why? At one point, he has, Moses has a word from Yahweh directly to Pharaoh. Exodus 9.16. For this purpose, I have raised you up so that To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, Exodus 14, 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. So God rules rulers for his purposes. And his purpose here is the judgment of his people who have belittled his glory. God is not angry simply because Zedekiah does evil. Zedekiah does evil because Yahweh is angry.
0: The king is their judgment. Climactically, what brings
1: Zedekiah's reign to an end is that he, we read verse 3, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar, who deposed of his nephew Jehoiakim Zedekiah on the throne with Zedekiah Zedekiah swearing fealty loyalty covenant loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar in Yahweh's name so he's not just breaking covenant with Zedek, with Nebuchadnezzar He's breaking covenant with God. Second Chronicles thirty six thirteen says that Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Notice it says he stiffened and hardened his heart against turning. It's one thing to say his heart was hardened towards Yahweh, I think it represents another level of intensity to say, his heart was hardened towards repenting towards Yahweh. This oath was a covenant commitment, again, not simply to Nebuchadnezzar, but to Yahweh. This is why Ezekiel condemns him saying, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, took one of the royal offspring, Zedekiah, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. I want you to see that rebellion is a covenant concept. It is throughout Scripture again and again. His rebellion was a breaking covenant. Ezekiel asks a question, can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? And with this rebellion, we then see the siege of the city. But with this, notice how in verses 1 through 11, the city's being
0: besieged, but the focus remains Zedekiah. Sword, famine, pestilence bring the city to its breaking point. The walls are breached.
1: The, the city falls. The men of war flee the city by night. Zedekiah among them, verse 7. And while some of the forces are scattered, so remember those kind of guerrilla forces that we saw come to Gedaliah after the fact. Some of the forces are scattered. Verse 9, the king is captured. He's brought to Ribla, where the last thing he will see before his eyes are plucked out is the slaughtering of his sons. To live out then the rest of his life in a Babylonian prison. With those images emblazoned in his mind. Yahweh had warned Zedekiah. I will strike down the inhabitants of this city. Both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. Afterward declares the Yahweh. I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his servants. And the people in the city who survived the pestilence. Sword and famine. I will give them. Into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies. Into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, or spare them, or have compassion. Yahweh watched over His word. Jeremiah 34, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but you shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face and you shall go to Babylon. Yahweh watched over his word to perform it. God's word of judgment is true. You cannot ignore it. It does not go away. If you try to run from it, you do nothing but run into it. There's not a rug big enough under which you can sweep it. It can't be swept under the rug because the rug is His Word. The broom is His Word. You are His Word. You walk on words. You run through words. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds The universe by the word of his power. He is the author. You are his character. This is his book. You have no more hope of evading him. Than Macbeth did of Shakespeare. You cannot escape his word. And sometimes. His providential word of judgment. On a
0: wicked people. Is a wicked king. In this, his judgment is
1: something like what we refer to, what we see in Romans chapter 1. We, we speak of that as the passive wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, three times we read something very similar. Romans one twenty four. therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26 20, uh, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Romans 1.28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Their relationship to their king was very much them getting what they wanted. And that, that the kingdom should end this way is really quite fitting because their kingdom began with them seeking a king to be like the pagan nations. And now they receive a king like the pagan nations have themselves, having become pagan. In Saul, God gave his rebellious people the king they desired, and now... At the close, he does so again. Saul, pictured as a type, is symbolically used in reference to "all the northern kings in Hosea 13:10 through 11. Yahweh asks, "Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers?" Those of whom you said, "Give me a king and princes." And then he says, I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. That's what's happening. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. That's the explanation for why Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gave them Zedekiah in his anger. And then when they needed a king, that king was nowhere to be found. In his wrath, God gives kings in his anger. He takes them away. Demonstrates they are useless.
0: Remember why they wanted a king? We want a king that will fight our battles. the king they desire is useless when a wicked ruler
1: sits on the throne don't so much fear the judgment that
0: may come fear the judgment that already is in the next section verses 12 through 16 we turn from zedekiah's uh,
1: excuse me nebuchadnezzar's dealings with zedekiah to Nebuchadnezzar's dealings with Jerusalem. We turn to focus on the city. Under the siege, the city was damaged, but now under Nebuchadnezzar, the city, who's the captain of the guard, the city will be demolished. Three times the city has rebelled against Babylon. It will not do so again. The houses are burned, verse 13. The walls are broken down, verse 14. Its people are deported to Babylon. Uh, or they are t- to stay in the land designated as vine dressers and plowmen, verses 15 through 16. This fulfills Yahweh's word concerning destruction coming out of the north, chapter 1, verse 14. The city being besieged by Babylon, chapter 4, verse 16. So that she suffers sword, famine, and pestilence, 21 and verse 9. Is made a desolation, chapter 6 and verse 8. Her houses burned with fire and the people being taken into captivity, chapter 15, verse 2. The people have ignored all these words. They've ignored God's words, thinking that because they're God's people, and this is God's place, and that's God's house, that somehow, because of those things, they're immune. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word and say hear the word of Yahweh all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh thus says Yahweh of hosts the god of Israel amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place do not trust in
0: these deceptive words the temple of Yahweh the temple of Yahweh the temple of Yahweh Jeremiah 14:13 the prophet laments all oh lord Yahweh behold The prophets
1: say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine,
0: but I will give you assured peace in this place." Chapter 5 and verse 12, we're told that the same prophets spoken falsely of Yahweh. They've said, he will do
1: nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. You remember in 26 and verse 11, whenever the prophets and the priests sought to have Jeremiah executed, the reason they said he deserves to be executed is because he has prophesied against this city.
0: God's people, God's place, God's house. So that cannot possibly be God's word. It matters not if you've been
1: baptized. It doesn't matter if you're a member of this church, any
0: church. It doesn't matter if you attend regularly. Regularly. It doesn't matter if you like to listen to
1: worship music in your car. It doesn't matter if mommy and daddy love Jesus.
0: It doesn't matter if you read your Bible. It doesn't matter if you hear the Bible. Do you hear it and tremble in repentance and faith? He always says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite
1: and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. God is not to be manipulated by some magical talisman or words. He's not a genie for you to confine to a bottle. He cannot be treated like the gods of the Greek pantheon. There, there's not some way for you to manipulate or trick or fool him. You cannot get
0: what you want out of God. You cannot both ignore his word and escape judgment. Every soul that is saved is saved without works. Every soul that's saved
1: is saved without works. With the exception of the unborn or the mentally incapacitated. Though every soul that is saved is saved without works. None
0: are saved without the word. If you would have any hope of salvation. If you would hear God's word of grace, you must first hear His word of judgment. In The next section, we back up a bit before the
1: temple was burned to see it looted, verses 17 through 23. The temple's been looted many times throughout its history, but it would be refurnished, refurbished. But it's never been... uh, desecrated as we see it here. Nebuchadnezzar had previously pillaged the temple. Whenever he put Zedekiah on the throne, just having deposed of his nephew, he looted it at that instance. At that instant. Um, And with that, that makes sense of something we see here in First Kings seven and Exodus twenty five. All the utensils, all the tools involved in their temple worship are pure gold.
0: But now you see silver and gold are mentioned. Whenever the temple was first raided, the false prophets said, Oh, these things will come back soon. Jeremiah said, No, more will be taken before any of them will
1: return to this place. And though they're more costly per ounce, these gold and silver utensils are more easily replaced than the large bronze pieces that are mentioned here. While we're told that the utensils are taken, verse 18, the massive bronze sea and pillars are first broken And then carried into Babylon, verse 17. And you couple that with all the detail that we see concerning their construction. And their artistry. I think the point becomes really plain. The author is meaning to communicate
0: something to you of the depth of loss. That's happened. With the burning of the temple a pan made of gold can be easily replaced.
1: But the bronze pillars, named by Solomon, Boaz, and Jacob, dedicated by him, original to the temple,
0: crafted uniquely, expertly so.
1: Well, Those are like family heirlooms lost in a fire. They're... They're like so many works of architecture and art that in World War II were forever damaged, ruined, lost, stolen, never to be regained. They're irreplaceable. Solomon's temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, will forever be, from this point, nothing more than a fading memory. You sense it, don't you, whenever you read through the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple you wonder what must it have looked like what 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 must it have the, the senses that were involved the smells the the all that it must have evoked and whenever you you look at even those just expertly done illustrations in your esv study bible you still realize those are only approximations someone's interpretation they don't rep- it's a, it's just a
0: It's a a faint picture. A representation that you still are clueless, really, what it really looked like. So with this, learn this. Don't think sin's wages cheap.
1: Don't think God's chastening something you can... Pop right up from and resume your play as if nothing happened. As if all the toys will still be in the room. Sense the gravity of God's judgment. Yes, God's grace is greater than our sin. Yes, His redemption will cause blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. Yes, He works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Yes, 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 but... never ever use those blessed truths to excuse cursed sin. Sin lost the garden. Sin brought the curse. Sin cost David a son. Sin divided the kingdom. Sin destroyed the temple. Sin exiled the people. The wages of sin is death. There's grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption in Christ. But don't fail to see this. In this walk that we have through this earth, there are things that you will lose by sin that you will never be able to regain. Yes, David mercifully enjoys riches beyond his every loss. So great is the mercy and grace that is in Christ. But, don't you know throughout all his living days in sorrow, as he experienced again and again the consequences of that moment with Bathsheba,
0: he wished he could go back and avert his eyes and turn them to his God. Next, we return to the people. A more detailed account as to what happened to
1: them, verses 24 through 30. First, you have this list of officials that Nebuchadnezzar brought to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, had them executed. And then we have this list of figures, three deportations. And the figures here are far less than those that we see in 2 Kings 24, 14 through 17. and. Not sure how to reconcile all this, except one a couple of opinions. One is that this figure represents uh, men only, whereas the larger figures you see in second Kings, men and women, children. I, I don't think that's satisfying. I think there's something more, perhaps something in, being said in far as how Nebuchadnezzar took away these specifically for Babylon. Versus those who were exiled more broadly. To
0: Babylon kingdom. Spread diversely. Don't know. This does continue to demonstrate. The truth
1: of God's word of judgment on his people. But at this point. If you haven't already begun to have a kind of hope kindled in you, whenever you read about the vessels and you're recalling, wait, Jeremiah did say more would be taken, that's being fulfilled. But he promised with those more being taken, they would return. Ezra chapter 1, list those vessels that have returned. But especially at this point where you see these people carried away captive, and you think about how this is tacked on at the end of Jeremiah, and you remember that the remnant... Went into Egypt, and that remnant we've already seen was promised utter destruction. But you remember it wasn't so for the remnant that was going to be taken to Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 24, after Nebuchadnezzar had taken away the first exiles, Jeremiah received a word, a vision. He sees two baskets of figs, one group of figs very bad, the other very good. And the bad figs were those that were to be left in the land to be utterly destroyed. Concerning the good figs, we read, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And that that hope is meant to be kindled as you're reading of these exiles here, I think is made plain by the last and concluding section of Jeremiah. Evil Merodach, when you read that, don't think, um, that was in contrast to his brother, good Merodach. Evil is just the Hebrew rendering of the Babylonian Amul-Marduk, evil Merodach, Amul-Marduk, son of Marduk, son of Nebuchadnezzar, reigned only a short time, but in his ascension year, accession year, which is probably tied to why he's doing this. Like it's We think of presidents at their close, acts of pardon, very likely as he took the throne, This act of pardon was done as as kind of a typical thing. He liberates Jehoiakim, speaks favorably to him, gives him a seat of honor above all at his table, and a regular allowance for the rest of his life, verses 31 through 34. Think about this. Jehoiakim began reigning when he was 18 years old. He reigned three months. And now he spent 37 years in prison,
0: age 55. You imagine what a reprieve? This is unexpected. You imagine what a reprieve this came to? Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim as? What are we to make of this? God's word of
1: judgment proves so solidly true then his word of grace is just as true one scholar writes in its present context the chapter seems to say the divine word both has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled Jeremiah 23, 5-6, God promised. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Which causes you to think back earlier to the promise made through the prophet Isaiah to the people that from the stump
0: of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Zedekiah,
1: all his children executed before his eyes. But the chapter closes with Jehoiakim being shown mercy. In favor. In Jeremiah thirty-eight through nine, God promised that it shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Also, Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen through seventeen. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, Yahweh our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel.
0: Jehoiakim is also known as Jeconiah. And Matthew's genealogy
1: in teasing out David's line records that after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah
0: was the father Shealtiel, after the deportation, what you're reading in
1: verses 31 through 34 is that after the deportation hope that Matthew picks up on. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Sinner, if God's word of judgment Has caused you to tremble and fear. May it now comfort you with the promise it holds forth here. God gave a king in his anger, but know that he also has given a king in his mercy.
0: The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness,
1: all who will bow before Him trembling in repentance and faith will be delivered to forever dwell in the kingdom of God. This chapter opens with a king dethroned. It closes with a king delivered in hope of the delivering king. This Historical word here then vindicates not only the prophetic word as prophetic word of judgment as having been fulfilled, it also bolsters hope in the prophetic word of
0: grace being fulfilled. And saints, Christ came, he died, he rose, he's seated at the right hand of the
1: Father. And he will return in all glory. So believe not only God's word of judgment, believe His word
0: of redemption. In light of this confirmed word, this expected hope, Peter's
1: words seem a most appropriate conclusion to our study of Jeremiah.
0: Second Peter 1:19 we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. In light of this historical appendix that shows
1: God's word vindicated, looked over, performed, And the hope that it holds out that you've already seen come into this world though it's not yet fully here. Saints, with this prophetic word more fully confirmed pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns
0: and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's pray. Father. We deserve. No such king. As the Lord Jesus Christ. We deserve only
1: one. In your anger. Such that we. Build up wrath towards the day of wrath. But praise be to you for your son who has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That you've transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. And in him there's redemption and grace and forgiveness.
0: All things made new. Give us humble, tender hearts
1: to your word confidence that it is true and anchor our souls there in faith and repentance to be doers of it and not hearers only. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.